Hey, as we begin our study today, I want to tell you about something that happened to me. This was a couple years ago now. I was driving home from a road trip, and I was still a long way from home. I was several states away, and I had a long, long, many, many hours of driving to go. And, And I'm driving down the road. Everything's going fine. And then it seemed like every warning light on my dashboard went off. Have you ever had one of those experiences? Like, oh, man, don't they always come at the worst times? Absolutely. Of course, there's never a good time for your warning lights to go off, but I am so far from home. So I pull over to the side of the road because every, every warning light says your car is overheating. And so I get out, I pop the hood to look inside, which is funny because if you know me, I don't know anything about cars. So looking underneath the hood's not going to help me much, okay? But, you know, the car is overheating and I really didn't know what to do. And so I grabbed my, my iPhone and I, and I looked at my GPS and I saw that there was a small town about five miles up the road. And at the time, I was kind of feeling like I was out in the middle of nowhere. So that was like awesome, only five miles from here. So it took me about an hour and a half. I don't know if this was a wise thing to do or not, but I would drive for a minute or two and pull off and let the car cool down. Start it up, drive. It took me an hour and a half to go those five miles. So some of you mechanics can tell me what I did wrong with that little thing later. But anyway, I got there, and lo and behold, it's late in the day, but I did find a mechanic and who looked at my car, he diagnosed it, he goes, hey, your water pump is wasted and I'll fix it for you, but I can't do it until tomorrow. So you get to be, I am stuck. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that, but I was too far away from home for anybody to come get me. So I didn't really have any choices. And I can tell you how I was feeling at the time. Have you seen the, ki- the kids movie Cars? You know when Lightning McQueen, McQueen finds himself in Radiator Springs? Well, I felt like Lightning McQueen, and for me, this mechanic was Mater, okay? This, this is, this is, I'm not making fun of it, I just, this is how I felt at the time. And so I knew I was going to be stuck there overnight, and so I just asked him, I said, well, could you tell me where I should stay tonight, because there's so many choices, and um, I, I, could you point me in the right direction? And, and he says to me, oh, you need to stay at Ruby's. And I said, Ruby's, I I said, is that a a restaurant or a hotel? And he goes, it's not just a hotel, it's a restaurant too. And he goes, everybody loves Ruby's. And he goes, hop in the car, I'll take you down there. And I said, well, hold on a minute. This was kind of the big city in me coming. I said, oh, hold on just a minute. I I, Let me call down there first and see if they have any availability, okay? And and he says, I kid you not, he goes, availability? They got room. And I said, well, I'd still feel better if I called first instead of just showing up. And then he said this, and I quote. He said, well, you go ahead and call. And if they tell you that they don't have room, you tell them that I said they did. And I'm like, okay, okay. They had room, and um, surprise. And so he took me down there and dropped me off. And, and, uh, and I'll be honest with you, I was feeling pretty frustrated. But I mean, it had been a long day, and it had been hours with this stress, and you know, and not even sure what was going to be the next move. And and I, I get stuck, and I was frustrated. And I'm, I get in my hotel room, and so I actually start to get a little hungry. And so I walk out of my room and literally take like five paces, and I'm at the restaurant door. Okay, so I go in, and it was one of these places that had you know eight or nine, ten booths max, and it was one of those little local restaurants that when you walk in, every person in there turns and looks at you and gives you that, hey, you're not from around here, look. You know, have you, have, am I describing a situation you have ever been in? 
And so I sit down and, and, and I'm frustrated, but it's my first moment to actually sit down and kind of just take an inventory of my situation and look around. It was my first moment where I felt like, okay, just take a deep breath and relax. You're absolutely fine. And then as I'm sitting there, um, this thought comes to my mind. This is exactly what I was thinking at the time. What in the world am I doing here? I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be at Ruby's. I am a Ruby's prisoner. That's what I was thinking. And the reason I know that's because I wrote it down. I recorded what I was thinking at the time. I do that sometimes. I write down my thoughts when I find myself in, in different... So I, what am I doing here? That's what I wrote down. I don't want to be here. I'm a Ruby's prisoner. These aren't my people. They're not my people at all. I don't know how to act in this situation. I am trapped in a foreign land and I want to go home. That's what I wrote down. I look back on it now and I think it's kind of silly to think that way. But you know, as I read chapter 18 of the story and I catch up with where the Israelites are at in this part of the story, I wonder if some of them weren't kind of feeling the same way. They've been defeated. They've been hauled off into captivity. Their homeland is sitting empty. They are prisoners in a foreign land far away from home. They are stuck against their will. They are not where they want to be. They would rather be anywhere than right there. And I say this lightheartedly. My Ruby's experience was their Babylon. And I say that tongue-in-cheek. And I wonder if some of them, in their quieter moments, laid awake at night, and they asked themselves this question, how did we get here? What went so terribly wrong that we're here? What warning lights did we not follow? You know, we're studying the story, as many of you know, and, and I'll just say something briefly. If this is your first time, you may not be aware. We're going through the story, which is this resource right here. Everybody in our church got a copy of this, and if you would like to go through this with us and learn what the Bible is all about, you're, I would love for you to. Just pick up your own copy after you leave here today. It's our gift to you. It's also our invitation to come back. We've been, we'd say that every week. But what the story is, it's large portions of the Bible, word for word, arranged in chronological order to read from cover to cover, so that you under it captures the story from Genesis to Revelation. And those of us that have been in this series since the beginning, we, we know what went wrong. We, we can see it. We can trace it. We've seen how the Israelites went from slavery in Egypt to wandering in the wilderness, how they crossed over into the, their own land that God gave them, and they were permitted to build a house for the Lord to worship in. And we saw how they went from that to becoming this divided nation where they were split into two different groups. And we saw how one group got completely annihilated. They're no longer around. And all that was left was this little bitty tribe of Judah, the remnant of what's left of God's chosen people. And they turned to idol worship as well. And now because of that, God allowed his hedge of protection to be removed from them. He took his hands off of them and he said, I'm going to allow the Babylonians to come in here and, as he said through his prophet, wipe the plate with you up and down. And that's what happened. And here they are in captivity and, and, and we read this and, if, and some of you I know are reading this chapter by chapter, week by week and you've not read the Bible and you've not read ahead and you're not sure what happens next. And if that's you, you might be tempted to say, this is the end. They did their best, they gave it a good shot, but this little experiment of God's chosen people, well, it failed. Well, I just wanna let you know you'd be wrong. In fact, it's not over. 
In fact, what we're gonna learn here in the next couple weeks, God's not done with them. God's not done with them by a long shot. However, they will spend the next 70 years in captivity in a foreign land. And it's during this captivity we are introduced to four heroes of the Bible. Their names Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you've already read chapter 18, you already know all that they did. They were among the best. They were among the brightest of those young people who were deported from, from the Holy Land to captivity. Um, most likely, they were teenagers. Teenagers when this takes place. Now, think back when you were a teenager. What were you doing? What were you involved with? What did you believe? What were you convicted about as a teenager? You're going to find out in this chapter what these four young men were convicted about when they were teenagers. And what we've read, what we'll continue to study today, is that these four guys had this, there's only one way to describe it, a courageous devotion to God. And it started when they were young, and it carried through all the way to when they were old men. Now, we see in this chapter, it's Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they found themselves in a situation where they had to be courageous. King Nebuchadnezzar said, everybody's got to bow down to this image that I've created. And they said, no, absolutely not. And they stood up when everyone else bowed down, and it got them tossed in the fiery furnace, and they are willing to do it for God. I'm telling you, that is a courageous devotion. If you've read your chapter, if you know the story, you know that God rescued them. We also know in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel, by Daniel 6, is an old guy. He, he's well into his 80s, something maybe into his 90s, and he prays every day three times facing Jerusalem, and some tricksters came in and fooled the king of the time to passing this crazy law that you only could pray to him. And not one thing changed about da Daniel's life. He went home, he prayed, he got found out, and off to the lion's den he goes. He took a stand, and God rescued him if you read the story. Those things are amazing, and it points us to a lifetime of courageous devotion to, to God. And, and what's even more amazing is they got deported because all of their fellow brothers were following idols, but for some reason, these four guys did not. And here they were, shining lights for God in a dark place. Maybe some of you can relate. And I'm the only Christian in the office. And I'm the only Christian in my family. I'm the only Christian on my block. I'm the only, I'm the only, I'm the only. You fill in the blank. You've got something in common with these guys. But we see this courageous devotion to God. And I believe that God wants us today to have that same courageous devotion to him, to be willing to take a stand, even, even if it comes with a very high price tag. It's hard to believe it's been around 18 years since Columbine. Did you realize it's been that long? About 18 years. When two disgruntled students murdered many of their classmates and teacher. It's hard to believe it's been that long ago. Cassie Bernal is the name of a student who, who came out of that, where we knew about her because of what she endured that day. Cassie Bernal was a student, found herself trapped in, in, uh, in the school. And a witness said that one of the gunmen came up to her and said, do you believe in God? 
And she said, yes. And she lost her life. My understanding was there was another student not far away that was witness to this, and, and they survived. Now, who, who knows if Cassie would have been spared had she said no. But the point is she didn't say no. She said yes. She was willing to take a stand, even though the price tag was very high. And what have we seen God do with her story ever since then? What have we seen God do with her stand? He has broadcast that to millions. He even saw Michael W. Smith write a song just about her life and, and told her story more and more. And, and more Christians became more courageous and had a stronger devotion because she simply said, yes. I believe that God wants us to have that kind of courageous devotion to him and to be willing to take a stand. Even when the price tag is very high, that's what chapter 18 shouts to me. But before the fiery furnace, before the lion's den, there were these four young teenagers who decided ahead of time who were they going to worship. They had decided who they stood for. And there's this one description that comes to mind when I think of these four guys. Uncompromising integrity. Uncompromising integrity. What, what is Integrity. That's not a hard word to define. Integrity simply holds this idea. Here's a good definition for us. It's that you are the same person whether 10,000 people are watching you or nobody is watching you. That's integrity. That you're the same person no matter what. The, the reason why I think Daniel and his friends' lives shout uncompromising integrity is because in every case that we know about from chapter 18 through the book of Daniel... They could have made different choices. It would have been easy for them to get out of these situations that we read about. They could have gotten out of them and no one would have even known. But that's not who they were. That's not what their courageous integrity was all about. To them, it didn't matter if the king was watching or if 10,000 people were watching or if God, it only mattered God was watching. And so they responded accordingly. I remember sitting in class in Bible college and one of my professors was telling the class, and I don't remember now why integrity came up in class, but he told the class about something that happened in his life that he was really proud of. You see, he said not long ago, his son was watching TV in another room. And he heard the TV on, and so he decided to just kind of step into the back of the room to see what his son was watching. Many of us parents have done the exact same thing, haven't we? And he stood in the back of the room for a minute. As he tells his story, he said, something popped up on the TV that my son knew and I knew he had no business watching. It came on. And my professor said, I was about to say, son, it's time to turn the channel when his son beat him to it. He, his son flipped the channel and put the remote down. And this father was telling us in this class how proud he was because his son showed great integrity because he had no idea his dad was watching. That's integrity. Ted Ingstrom, I think, gives a very succinct definition of integrity. He says this, simply put, integrity is doing what you said you would do. It means you keep your promises. When you promise to be faithful to your spouse, integrity says you'll stay with that person no matter what. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. 
If you promised the Lord that you would give him glory, integrity means that you keep on doing that whether you're reduced to nothing or exalted to the highest pinnacle on earth. If you promised a friend that you would return a call, integrity means you return it. If you promised your child that you'd spend Saturdays with them together, integrity means you keep that appointment. A promise is a holy thing, whether made to the chairman of the board or to a child. I think he's on to something. Because there are few things in this life that speak louder about your relationship with God than your integrity. And this chapter is all about that. So on page 249, let's read about what these four teenagers did that shouted integrity. Page 249, this is the equivalent to Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. It says this, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assure, uh, assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. For the sake of clarity from this point forward, even if the text says something else, I'm going to say Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because that's what I've been saying since I was this tall, okay? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But they've got several names in Scripture, and you'll see that. So you have these four guys, like I said, I want to stress it, most likely teenagers, part of a larger group um, that were fortunate enough of the exiles to be brought into training to be a part of the royal palace and to be put into the king's service. Essentially, this three-year program was like a master's degree in Babylonian culture and language. For three years, that's all they did. They studied about what Babylon was all about. They learned their customs, they learned their music, they learned their language, all of those things. And then here from the very beginning, we see that Daniel's friends in that situation still maintained this sense of right and wrong. We would call that today, they had a strong moral compass in that situation. So they get this exclusive training. They were picked from the rest. The easy thing to do was to just go along with it, right? Maybe in their mind they thought, God's already a bit. That, that's not who they were. So here's what happens next. This is on the bottom of page 249. They get picked for this school. This is Daniel chapter 1, verse 18. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. I love that because I believe God still does that stuff today. So God caused his official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would, have, would then have my head because of you. Do you understand what's going on? 
everything about their life is, is prescribed for them. When you get up, when you go to sleep, when you study, what you do every day and what you eat. There's no flexibility. There's no choices in this. You go along or you get out and this official is saying, listen, if we do what, you, if we do what you're suggesting, my head, he'll have my head, not yours. So here's what happens next. Then Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. These four teenagers had to make a choice. And the choice was this. Do I keep my integrity and follow what God would have me to do? Or do I just keep my mouth shut, just do what the rest of the crowd is doing, and play it safe? And what we just read gave us the answer. Daniel and his friends chose to do what God would have them to do, and that was to not defile themselves. That choice leads me to this truth that I want to share with you. It just shouts out of the Bible that integrity is an active choice. Integrity, it's, it's, a, it's an active choice on our part. Nobody stumbles into integrity. Do you realize that? No, nobody just stumbles into it. It's like, oh, oh I was integrity-filled today. It doesn't work that way. You choose integrity. You choose integrity because you are aware that something much bigger than you is at work in this world and in your lives. Why else would we be men and women of integrity? It shouts to the fact that God has an upper story and our faith in God and his, his provision and his care and his knowledge and over the upper story impacts our lower story. That's why we choose integrity and that's the only reason. Why wouldn't we be out for ourselves and get what we want and pleasure ourselves and all those things? Why do we live with integrity? Because we are aware that there is a God and that he loves us and he has a plan for our lives. That's why. That's the only reason. You choose integrity. You don't stumble into it, ever. I, I don't really know what the big issue was with this food and this wine from the king's table. It was an issue for these four young guys, but whatever it was, they said that it would defile them. Now that word defile is a pretty clear word in Scripture. It holds this idea of making something filthy or dirty or polluted, so they're saying, we can't put that in our mouths. We would be polluted if we did that. It would be a defilement. This word also holds this idea that there is a separation. There's like a canyon between where you are right now and where you want to be. That canyon is a defilement between those two places. It sounds a lot like what sin does, doesn't it? Sin pollutes. Sin makes filthy. Sin creates a canyon between where you are and where you want to be. Aren't you glad that God sent his son Jesus out of his love to die on the cross and shed his blood so that defilement and that canyon could go away? I do. I'm glad. That's what they meant by defilement. Something about this would defile 
us. I've tried to figure out exactly what that defilement is. I've read what a lot of Bible scholars believe it was. Some would say that something about the food had something to do going back to the law of Moses and what they could or couldn't eat. Perhaps that's true. Some scholars believe that some of this food was most likely sacrificed to to Babylonian gods and they wouldn't partake. And that that makes a lot of sense to me too. Some um, have suggested that this food and wine by partaking it would have shown friendship to the king, which they certainly in their captivity state did not seem to want to align themselves fully with the king. That makes sense too, but we really don't know. The bottom line is this, that if they put it in their mouths, it would be a defilement and they weren't about to do it. And I wonder, because the text begs us to ask this question, are there things in your life right now that are causing you to be defiled. Whatever they may be. Whether someone says it's okay and somebody says it's not okay. But, but is there something in your life right now that in your conscience and in your integrity says, I can't do that, I can't be a part of that because it would be a defilement. Are you involved in something? Are you involved with someone? Or is there a behavior in your life And it makes you feel like every day that goes by, you're pushing God farther and farther away. And if so, you're probably dealing with the exact same thing that Daniel and his friends are dealing with. There's something that's causing a defilement. And you feel it in your spirit. And you know it. But in refusing to eat this food, um, these men were willing to, to risk it all for their beliefs, to keep their integrity, and God blessed them for it. Let's look and see what happened. This is on page 250. Here's how this comes out. This is the conclusion of that. This is Daniel 1, verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into a service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the musicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And right here we see again time and time again in the story that God blesses humility and integrity. He does, which shouts this truth right back to me, that when we choose integrity, God's blessings follow. And when we choose integrity, God's blessings seem to follow right behind those decisions. Now, God's blessing doesn't always mean safety. God's blessing doesn't always mean full tummies. God's blessings looked at, but when we choose integrity God's blessings follow they do they knew it was worth the risk to keep their integrity and I don't know about you I get the impression I can't prove it from scripture but I get the impression that this was an automatic decision the Bible doesn't tell us that after they thought about it for a long time they made this decision that's not in there 
It seems like it was automatic. We go to Daniel 3, and we see the fiery furnace incident. It seemed like an automatic decision. We go to Daniel 6, and we read about the lion's den. It feels like an automatic decision. In other words, what it means is they had already decided the kind of life they were going to live. They had already decided whom they were going to serve and whom they were going to worship. And when they were faced with these integrity situations, their minds were already made up. And that's how it works, my friends. When you're wholly devoted to God, when your life is in complete surrender of Him, and you're living every single day for Him, these integrity situations don't seem to be as huge as they would to others. They trusted in God, they didn't trust in man, and God blessed them. The same will happen for each of us. So I kind of come back to my original thought at the beginning of the sermon. God wants us, you and me, to have that same courageous devotion to him, to be willing to take a stand, even if it comes with a very high price tag, and God's blessings will follow. So let me leave you with these two questions. Are there things in your life right now that are causing you to be defiled? And my second question, what are you going to do about it? What, what are you going to do about that? Because there are a few things that speak louder about your walk with God than your integrity. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful, Lord, that you've kept Scripture preserved so that we know about Daniel. We know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we can be encouraged by their stance for you. But Lord, I would pray for us now that we could be like them, that Lord, when we face situations where we have to make the decision, do I follow what God wants me to do or do I follow along what the world wants me to do? That we would make an automatic, easy decision for integrity because we are a group of people who've decided ahead of time about the God we worship and the God we serve and who we love and how we're to behave. Oh, Lord, I pray for anybody in this room today that has gotten themselves caught up in a defilement that's been eating away at their spirit that even right now, Lord, you have just made them keenly aware. And I would pray, Lord, that their one response today in the next few moments would simply be this, oh God, I am sorry. And oh God, I will change. Oh God, help me be like the four men we just read about. Oh God, please forgive me. You know, if you're praying that right now, know that God has forgiven you already. His grace has washed over that sin. And it's not dirty. It's not polluted any longer. And you feel it right now. God is drawing back close. Because you've dealt with the canyon of separation between the two of you. Lord, I would pray for anybody who perhaps has never walked with you, has never surrendered their life to you. Lord, I would pray today that today would be the day 
that they would, Lord, surrender everything about themselves to you by just humbly saying, God, I believe, and I'm so sorry for my sins, and I want to live for you, and I want you to be my leader. Lord, I pray you speak to those today that need to make that decision. Lord, as a group, as a church family, we want to stand holy and pure before you, Lord. Help us to repent quickly of any sins. To repent quickly and let your grace wash over us so that we might walk in purity before you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I invite you to stand. And we're going to sing for a few minutes. Some of you may need to keep praying, and that's okay. Some of you need to, may need to start a conversation with God that's long overdue. That's okay.